It is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and it's time for the New Hampshire News Recap. We're getting into this week's top headlines. A judge has ordered New Hampshire State Police to release personnel records on a former state trooper who was fired for misconduct. Personnel records for police officers are almost always exempt from public disclosure in the state. So what does this ruling mean for police transparency? New Hampshire reporter Paul Kuno Booth has been following the story, and he joins us now via Skype. Good morning, Paul. Morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank, welcome to the recap. Uh, first, Paul, can you tell us more about former New Hampshire Police State Trooper Hayden Wilbur? Who, who is he and why was he fired? Sure. So Hayden Wilbur was a member of the uh, state police's mobile enforcement team. This is sort of a, a drug interdiction unit that um, makes a lot of stops on interstates in the uh, in New Hampshire and, and has come under some, some scrutiny for various reasons in, in recent years. Um, the reason he was fired stems from a 2017 vehicle stop he made on I-95. He arrested the driver for possessing a small amount of heroin in the vehicle, um, but he also had this sort of suspicion that she was carrying additional drugs um, on her person or, or in a body cavity. She denied that. Um, he ends up charging her with Um, an additional charge of bringing contraband into the jail. Um, She spends 13 days um, in detention, two body scans. She's strip searched. Um, There's an invasive body cavity search that she's um, ordered to undergo before she can be released. No drugs are ever found on her. The charge is dropped. Driver later sues for for civil rights violations. The state reaches a a $200,000 settlement with her. Um, And that also sparks an internal affairs investigation that finds um, a number of deficiencies in how uh, Wilbur handled this investigation. It finds that the um, charge of bringing contraband into the jail was not backed by probable cause. Um, It also discovered the fact that he illegally searched her phone without a warrant in violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, He admitted to uh, doing that on, on prior occasions as well. Um, and investigators also believed he uh, made false statements during this internal investigation. Um, he denies that, though he's admitted to the rest of the misconduct, and um, he's currently appealing his uh, termination. So many facets to this case. This mobile enforcement team that Wilbur belonged to, Paul, the, the ACLU, has criticized this group for its use of pretextual stops. Can you talk more about that? How, how do police agencies use pretextual stops to investigate drivers? Sure. So it's essentially what it sounds like, right? It's um, when a police officer has some sort of, you know, vague suspicion about a motorist that they see, they think they're up to good for for whatever reason, um, but don't actually have legal cause to to pull them over and investigate that particular suspicion. Um, They can pretty much just follow them and uh, wait for them to commit you know, one of the many minor driving infractions that many of us um, uh, do when anytime we get in a car. Um, so, you know, they'll, they'll pull a, a driver over for, you know, following too closely or, or um, going over the, the white line briefly and then kind of ask a series of questions about, you know, hey, where, where are you coming from? Where are you going to? What are your plans there? Just just kind of trying to investigate this general suspicion they, they have of a passing motorist. Um, and, and I think it's important to note that researchers have found most of these types of pretextual stops um, do not find evidence of a crime. So they're mostly stopping innocent drivers. Now, the racial justice advocates in the state and, and elsewhere have criticized police for using these kind of stops. And as you said, research across the country has found the practice can lead to things like black and Latino drivers being disproportionately stopped and searched. So what have you learned about stops and in, in, in racial profiling right here in the Granite State specifically? 
Yeah, and, and I think um, it's important to mention about that research. Um, you know, the experts I spoke to said that, yes, well, you know, explicit intentional racial profiling probably still, you know, does happen on occasion. Uh, you know, certain officers may, may be doing that. The, the much bigger problem with these pretextual stops is implicit bias, right? Because they're highly discretionary. They're based on these kind of, you know, vague or generalized suspicions. And when officers are instructed to do that, even if they're not aware of it, implicit biases are really going to affect who they find suspicious. Um, and, and data from various states bears that out. Um, unfortunately, in New Hampshire, we don't have a ton of good data on this. Um, the limited data I was able to find on the mobile enforcement team suggests um, in one recent period, they were disproportionately stopping Black and Latino drivers for um, certain minor violations, like following too closely lane issues that um, court records show they, they kind of often use as pretexts. Um, and then there's some individual cases that really raise questions for me. Um, there's actually one case where this trooper we were speaking about earlier, Wilbur, you know, follows a uh, black driver in his 20s for uh, a number of miles on the interstate and finds a reason to stop him. He says the reason he paid attention to that car was because it was unusually clean. Um, there's another case where a, a different trooper from the same unit um, followed a car after claiming to find it suspicious that the driver was wearing a hoodie with the hood up hoodies as uh, you know, we, we know have certain, you know, racialized connotations in this country. Um, so I think, you know, you look at some of these cases and it does raise a question. Um, but again, we, we just, we don't have great data on New Hampshire and the, from, you know, on these stops in New Hampshire. And that's kind of a constant complaint of people who, who work on these issues. Uh, I know the ACLU filed the right to know lawsuit earlier this year, seeking records about the police investigation of Wilbur. The agency declined to disclose those records, but the judge has now ruled they should be public record. I mean, that's, that's a rare thing, isn't it? In, in the state, in the state. You know, it, it used to be, but it's it's increasingly less so thanks to a couple of um, New Hampshire Supreme Court precedents from a few years back that really changed the landscape. And, you know, rather than saying police personnel files are just completely confidential, full stop, said you need to balance, you know, essentially the public interest against, you know, any privacy interest that may exist. Right. So the state in this case was arguing these should be totally off limits. A judge rejected that argument and said, no, you know, um, they're not. And there's a clear public interest here in knowing more about this misconduct and, and how state police investigated it. Paul Kuna Booth is an investigative reporter right here in New Hampshire. Thanks so much, Paul, for your time. Thank you. You can find the stories that uh, we talked about with Paul today uh, on NHPR through the Granite State News Collaborative. It is Morning Edition on NHPR. We're recapping this week's news. We're asking for your questions as well. If you want to know what's going on in the state and have questions about what's been going on, you can always email us at voices at nhpr.org and inform our reporting. And joining us now to talk about some of the bills that he's been following in the state legislature in this session is New Hampshire Bulletin reporter Ethan DeWitt. Good morning, Ethan. Good morning. First, uh, Ethan, I want to ask you about a bill that passed by uh, passed through the Senate this week called the Parental Bill of Rights. It would require schools to inform parents of sensitive information their children tell school staff. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So this bill um, establishes in, in the state statute a fundamental rights of parents to direct the upbringing, education, and care of their children. Um, and it's really quite an expansive bill. It, it touches a number of areas. Um, so one thing, a right that establishes the parental right to direct the moral or religious training of their child. 
Um, and then there's a number of other existing rights that parents already have that the, that the statute would make clear. Um, but the undercurrent of the bill is that it requires schools to provide continual information about their children. So um, a, a school has to tell parents um, about a child's registration in classes, about the athletic teams they join. If they join a club, the school would have to inform parents or any other extracurricular activity. And the, the bill requires that parents are made aware of any medical, psychological, or counseling services that their child receives. And it opens up the possibility of disciplinary action against teachers that don't immediately inform um, parents about what the children are doing in school. And then there's another provision that has um, become um, particularly controversial. It would require parents to notify, schools to notify parents promptly of any action uh, by a student in a number of areas, including their conduct, any truancy, dress code violations, um, sexual harassment, bullying, hazing, behavior management, suicide prevention, uh, and crucially, want, um, their gender expression or identity. Uh, so essentially, if a child uh, or a student in a school um, were exploring their gender identity or uh, were electing to use different pronouns and they use at home, mm -hmm. the school would be required under this law to inform the parents that this um, that these decisions were being made. So there's a lot of debate, obviously, going back. This has become a very political thing, obviously. But I, I want to ask you about the, the, the prospects for this bill, both in, in the Senate, and but also with the governor. What does the governor have to say about this? Yeah, I've actually, I've asked the governor's office and he has not come out with a clear position on this. Um, and it should be noted that the bill is not quite on its way to his desk yet. There's um, something called the committee of conference process, um, which means that the House and the Senate haven't quite agreed on their version of that. So they have the whole next week to try to hash out agreement and decide whether it can get to his desk. So it isn't there yet. Um, I, I would say that the, the debate is falling, what we're seeing nationally over uh, kind of a, a split in how um, conservatives and progressives look at education and the role of, of parents and schools in a child's life. And that that division has been replicated here in New Hampshire. And you're seeing uh, Republicans and Democrats strongly disagreeing over, um, you know, whether parents should should be informed about every single moment, even if it means uh, telling parents um, about something that a child isn't ready to tell them themselves. Mm -hmm. Republicans are looking at it as a parental rights um, issue. Right. So it's, it's definitely something that we'll be watching the governor's reaction carefully if the bill makes it to his desk. Now, a different bill that you were following, Ethan, this week would provide funding for a new parking garage for the 400 members of the New Hampshire House. Their current parking garage on Store Street in Concord is in very poor condition. I, I want to ask you about how much money would go toward a new garage, number one. And number two, uh, they seem to be trying to put some other measures with this bill. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, the garage would be about $30 million or around 30 to $35 million. Uh, it would replace the current attorney general's office in this, uh, which is right next to the state house. It would be a 600 space garage and it would be paid for by federal COVID relief money. So it's kind of a one-time opportunity before that money expires. Um, but what happened is we're in the end stage of the legislative negotiation process. And so because this parking garage bill is so desired by the House, especially, the Senate has added on a number of its priorities to the bill at the last 
last minute and basically are are kind of setting up a negotiating gambit where they say, if you want this parking garage, you're going to have to consider all these other um, provisions. So those include uh, a housing bill that the governor has wanted, um, a school funding bill, a bail reform bill that would pull back some areas of bail reform and um, allow for more pretrial incarceration, um, a number of other um, changes requested by the Department of Health and Human Services. So what's happening in this next week is the, this parking garage bill, which started as a five page bill, is now about a 35 page bill. Mm-hmm. And lawmakers are going to have to debate over over what they want, what their priorities are and what whether the parking garage is worth it enough to accept these other conditions. How do you see some of that debate going? <laughs> it's impossible. To predict. I was talking <laughs> to the leaders in both chambers this week, and both of them say that if you try to predict how these committees end, uh, you know, it's, it's at your own um, peril. So I, I, I'm going to be fascinated to see what it really is a, a matter of priorities. And it's like, which what what priorities are each chamber going to fight for and try to keep and which ones are they willing to let go or let the other side have? Well, and it, we're not going to really know that until next week. And then all of this will be patched into a final bill um, or it won't. It may fall apart. And and some of these bills may may die before they reach the governor's desk. It'll be Time interesting to watch. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> definitely. New Hampshire Bulletin's Ethan DeWitt. Ethan, thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find more of his work at NewHampshireBulletin.com. We'll be here next Friday with more top headlines as well. I'm Rick Anley. This is Morning Edition from NHPR.